live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Ha. This sound like theme music. Motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Check the score. Jamel show improving. Trophy. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. You know, I said I wasn't going to speak on something that I'm about to speak on because I was honestly trying to decide if it was just too silly to address or if by addressing it, I might be giving it too much oxygen, especially to a lot of really silly ass people. But after she trended for three straight days, I just said, fuck it, I'm jumping in. And so the word of the week is misogynoir. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week, yeah. In case you're unfamiliar with this word, it was a term that was coined by Dr. Moya Bailey, a black feminist scholar who explains the special partnership between racism and sexism this way. In particular, social media. The representations of black women and gender expansive people that I witnessed was limited and negative. It was anti-Black, racist, and sexist, and an outright hatred of Black women and girls. It was so rampant that I coined the term misogynoir to address it. Now, last week, an incredible amount of hatred was directed at my former ESPN colleague, Malika Andrews, somebody I'm very friendly with. And she is a dynamic NBA reporter and anchor who hosts a daily NBA show called NBA Today. She's a regular fixture in ESPN's NBA coverage. And earlier this year, she was the first woman to host the NBA draft. All of this, and she's not even 30 years old. Malika apparently incited the wrath of the incels and the ashes because of her pointed comments on Boston Celtics coach Ime Udoka, the fiance of Nia Long. Some of you know him that way. Uh, He received a year-long suspension from the team last week for violating, quote, Team policies. Now, numerous reports say the suspension stems from a consensual but improper affair in which Ime Udoka made unwanted comments. Now, I don't know what that means exactly, but I do know that Ime Udoka fucked up. I'm going to deal with the professional end of this because, as a longtime sports journalist, that's the part I know. Ime Udoka just took the Boston Celtics to the NBA Finals as a first-year head coach. For a black coach to do that with this premier franchise, that's a massive accomplishment. There was a lot of discussion and blame, but the conversation that most dominated all of the chattering on social media was this exchange between Malika and top ESPN personality Stephen A. Smith. Stephen A., with all due respect, this is not about pointing the finger. Stop. What, what became apparent to me in this press conference is that we do not have all of the information here. And it was frustrating to me that the Celtics declined to elaborate or to give more specifics about what exactly the rule breaking was that led us to this point. So, so that I just want to get that out of the way first. But to answer your question, Molly, I think what stood out to me. I think what stood out to me is that Brad Stevens, he was upset. That's what stood out to me about what he termed uh, rampant 
Twitter uh, BS is the word that he used, that women were unfairly dragged into this within the Celtics organization. You could see that Brad Stevens was visibly upset about this. And I also found that to be gross and unnecessary, that folks were bringing in the names and the images of women that is just not a fact, that was purely speculation. And so to me, that is what stood out. But the Celtics as an organization could have done more. And short of doing more ahead of this yesterday, they could have owned that responsibility in this press conference. I understand that there were legal parameters that they had to operate within uh, for everybody involved. And I appreciate the fact that they brought in uh, outside counsel and did a thorough organization. And I think that that is something that was clearly uh, necessary in this situation. But the fact that it was able to go on all day, the fact that we are sitting here debating whether somebody else should have been suspended or not, we are not here, Stephen A., to further blame women. That is not why we are here. First of all, let me be very clear. I don't appreciate where you're going with that. I'm not blaming anybody but Ime Udoka. He deserves, the fact of the matter is I've said, he deserved to be fired if they were going to fire him. If you're not going to fire him, then don't fire him. My issue is all of this being publicized. The point that I'm trying to make is just you like you're not mentioning. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. I listened to you. You're the one telling me to stop on my show. It ain't happening. I've known Stephen A. far longer than I've known Malika. Probably going on almost 20 years that I've known Stephen A. Smith. Now, even though I've disagreed with him a time or two or 20, he's one of the best showmen in the business. And I don't mean that in a shallow way. Stephen A. knows how to sell a strong opinion. It's why he's the face of ESPN, in my opinion. Malika came in with a strong point and Stephen A. fired back, reminding her whose show it was, which, to be honest, I didn't love. But if you watch shows like this one, there is an aggressive level of debate that is just par for the course. The men on these debate shows go at each other like that and worse on a regular basis. But the Ashies and the incels decided that Malika had made the grave mistake of not staying in her place. And therefore, they had to rally their moisturizer deficient armies against her in such a vile, juvenile and ridiculous fashion. They started circulating pictures of her and the person she's reportedly dating, who is a white man, which only fed their disgusting need to prove that their favorite sport will always be bringing the full force of their ignorance down on a black woman. It was just earlier this year that Malika was being widely praised for her work, for her excellent sideline reporting in the NBA finals, and for her rising to have her own daily NBA show. The same dudes who are so callously and rudely calling her a sellout bedwinch, a biscuit eater, another one of their favorites, were the same dudes who, before last week, were making her trend on Twitter for an entirely different reason. Because all they could talk about, other than her NBA acumen, was that she was a dime. Now, this is especially gross behavior. And even worse, some of these same crusty clowns have been tagging me and other female sports journalists trying to weaponize us against Malika. Now, I've been gone from ESPN for four years, and I ain't never been allegedly 
missed as much as I have last week. Now, that's the shit I'm definitely not here for. And as much as some of these people suddenly want to immaturely drag Malika for not being me, these same folks clearly do not remember all the names they called me when I called out Floyd Mayweather for his horrible history of domestic violence or when I expressed disgust at the people who were trying to blame Ray Rice's wife, Janae, after he punched her violently in an elevator. Pretty much any time I criticize a high-profile black male athlete which doesn't happen as often as these ashes seem to think that it does, I can count on my mentions and inboxes being an absolute dumpster fire. I too have been a bedwitch. I too have been a biscuit eater. I too have been a mammy. I too have been a sellout. I too have been a slave for the white man. To be honest, it's hurtful because so much of this anger was directed at me by black men who I love dearly, who I protect way more often than not. But apparently, there's a radicalized segment of them that does not mind engaging in the same consistently hateful behavior that the others are known for, when in their mind, I have stepped outside my place. And you know who I mean when I said the other people who consistently do that. Black women have to tread lightly and aren't fully empowered to speak certain truths, because if we do, We're considered traitors to our race and to our men. When the traits we possess, the strength and the outspokenness aren't used to serve the whims of others, we are hated for those very same traits. Misogynoir, the word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. This summer, I got the incredible opportunity to go to Cannes Lions in the south of France as part of Spotify's huge activation there. Musical performers every night, dope introspective panels, and an opportunity to amplify some of the fantastic things happening at Spotify. My guest today also was in France promoting his phenomenal scripted podcast, Batman Unburied, which is a Spotify exclusive available now, and I cannot urge you enough to go listen to it. It is just spectacular. The podcast you're about to hear, we taped in June. And this podcast studio, I don't know if I'll ever be able to adequately describe how dope it was. I've never been in a podcast studio quite like this. We were literally in a podcast booth right on the water. We discussed not only Batman Unburied, but his breakout performance in Black Panther and how his character unexpectedly became a sex symbol. We also talk about his return in Black Panther 2. I tried to ask him for details as nicely as possible about Black Panther 2, so you'll just have to listen to see if you hear any. But coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Winston Duke. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, Winston, I feel like I need to set the scene a little bit um, because this podcast studio that we're in is just so dope. We're on the French Riviera, and I know by the time that this airs, we will be, you know, a few months out. But I have to say, like, this is the most calming, incredible, incredible atmosphere that I've ever been. We're at Cannes Lions. And um, yeah, it's just like an incredible setting. So I was like, I felt like I had to kind of get that way out of the and way. And we but. are like, literally, they built this thing on the water. They did. And as a Caribbean man, it feels so at home for me. That is very true, yeah. given um, what your roots are. So I'm going to start the podcast by asking you a question that I ask every guest who appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Um, when did you become unbothered? You know, to be honest, that's something that I'm learning. I can't say that I am completely unbothered. I'm learning to be unbothered. And um, it's been a process, you know. Uh, it's been a process since childhood to now. And it's really now that I've learned a lot more articulation in all the different ways in my life, I think I'm able to take better steps at becoming unbothered. Because learning to be unbothered is realizing that there's so much happening around you that that's, doesn't have to do with you. So if someone likes you or doesn't like you, that doesn't have to be your problem. Mm. You know, it's that's them. And you can only really control how you feel. You can only really control how you react in very many situations. You can't control how everyone else and how the landscape acts and reacts to you. You can only control yourself. So that's a very deep question, and I'm currently learning how to be unbothered. Okay, so how's that? How do you learn to be unbothered? How do I learn? Uh, you know, it's been coming to me in phases. So being six foot, almost six foot six, right now about 295 pounds. I've always been a big, I was the big kid that turned into the big man. Right. And not always in spaces of safety, you know. Um, and there was always feelings of that I'm potentially the aggressor, that I'm potentially the one, you know, that is a threat in some way. That's some of the most uh, of the like toxic energy and then other energy, even by other, you know, people of color was that you know uh maybe your competition in some way so and i've always just been the generous one i grew up in a large family i grew up like one of you know my mother was one of 12 which means that by extension i'm one of like 300 <laughs> you know what i mean so i always had to share my toys so as a human being i'm a person that shares my toys and as i grew into a, an adult man my toys stopped being, you know, little toy cars and started becoming information, experiences, 
things like that. And I always share my toys. So that's the kind of person I am. So I never deeply feel competitive with people, but I have to realize that how I'm perceived isn't always how I'm seeing the world. And becoming unbothered was really understanding that there's sometimes a disconnect, but it's not my responsibility to always be in charge of how they perceive me. And that's, that's been a, that's been a challenge, you know what I mean? And it's, it's, it's come full circle and I'm learning as I get older and I hopefully can pass that on to kids one day, you know, my own children, because, you know, I'm gonna have big kids. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting that you said that about your size, because we were at the Spotify VIP reception here in, in, in France uh, you know, we, we were standing what I thought to be a normal distance from one mm. another. And you were like, oh, I'm sorry. I think I'm hovering over you. Mm-hmm. Um, is being aware of your size, does it get a little exhausting, though, always having to, as you said, deal with other people's perceptions of you, even though you're seeing yourself differently? Yeah. You know, I think being Black in spaces, and I, it's not it, it translates to even when I spoke to you, but mm. being black in a lot of predominantly white spaces my whole life and the whole life of a lot of my friends, family, people I know, you know, you end up with a lot of what I call spatial fatigue, right? Mm. Where you don't even understand or all the time realize how much work you're constantly doing, you know, and that is what adds up. That's what I think adds to anxiety. It's what adds to some mental health needs, things like that. So I think I'm very aware of it and I've always had to be aware of, I always had to be aware of it for my own safety. And it's just uh, something that I'm, I have a lot of empathy for other people my size. And and even that just speaking to a black woman, I'm always just I'm aware of how much respectful space that I potentially need to give you when we're talking. So, because I had come close to you and I immediately saw your eyes go up. <laughs> well, that's because you're tall. Yeah, I, I'm very tall and that's exactly it. So I said, oh no, am I, am I, am I hovering I like, oh, over no, 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 no. you? So do I need to just back up a little bit? Cause I'm, I'm aware of, you know, I don't want you cranking your neck looking up. But yeah, it's it's something that I'm very aware of. And there is spatial exhaustion and spatial fatigue. And it's something that you learn to deal with with nuance as you get older and as you, you know, get more unbothered. You know what I mean? It's something that really settles inside you. And you understand what is your responsibility and what isn't. You know, I can make you more comfortable in the space, but your deep comfort and your your liking of me or disliking of me is not my job. Mm. You know what I mean? So since we're on the topic of your size, mm. how much does this impact you in Hollywood? Because, mm. you know, I don't know how many people the average person knows this. The mm. majority of actors are kind of short, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. And they're usually, um, you know, not as built as, yeah. as you are. So how do you think this impacts roles that you're, up for well first i want to say thank you for saying i'm built but in all honesty it's been really great because i think i was introduced to a mass audience very positively and through the role of mbaku in black panther where i wasn't seen as lenny of mice and men 
right? Which is a lot of times large frames get relegated to absurdity. And I was introduced to a global landscape with a lot of honor and integrity and respect and beauty. And the response at that time was with beauty. Like black women responded by being like, oh my God, I'm could I'm back, get it. Like, you know? <laughs> See, I wasn't even gonna bring that. But you know, yeah, yeah, we bring it up because <laughs> as funny as it is, it was really a social barometer and litmus test for the introduction. It was actually the response to the introduction. And that's what made that role and Ryan Coogler's vehicle so special for young men of my size, young women of my size. (laughs) People got to see themselves depicted with honor, see themselves beautifully, integrity. And... I think it it launched me into a space where the roles that I have opportunities to say yes or no to come straight up with a lot more honor, you know, from the ground floor. And people start going, man, I really see this man's ability to convey story and, and a wealth and, and rich tapestry of storytelling through that body that I didn't that I wasn't always aware of. And just that opportunity gives me so much more. I think we we underestimate how little actual change can spark gigantic, you know, ramifications. Like actual huge impact can come from smaller things or one small decision to say, choose this person in that role. Let this person be the speaker. Let this person lead that discussion. Let this person give their point of view how much of a ripple that causes. You know, you could drop a, a pebble into water and you'll see it go across the lake. And I think that's the time we're in, that the social media time, this blockchain time, is you could drop one pebble in the water and see it ripple across the world in seconds. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's, that's what I've been experiencing. But uh, I would imagine when you went into the role of Mbaku, mm. you probably didn't imagine he was going to become a bit of a, a sex symbol. At all. <laughs> oh, no. So what was that like for you? I mean, well, that iteration, I feel like that's what's really beautiful. Um, and that's something that we could see in, in Black Panther 1, Black Panther 2. Uh, the character in that iteration of the movie was a sex symbol and potentially could be something different in, in the next one. Was that a hint? That sounded kind of like didn't a say anything. I said, <laughs> didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. Didn't say anything. Uh, <laughs> no, but yeah, like I had no idea. None of us actually had any idea of the impact of that movie. We just thought we were making something very special and that it would have an impact on children. We knew we were making something that was fun. That's one thing. And I think it really goes to show once you have good intention, a lot aligns afterwards because the intention was to make a good movie, not a impactful movie, not a, you know, we're going to shift the landscape with this movie. 
as we were making it, we saw little glimpses of like really beautiful, special moments that stayed with us. But we had no idea. And I always say we walked into that movie as actors and walked out of the movie as ambassadors for this mythical kingdom of Wakanda. And that's something that still is a huge shock to me as we deal with everything around that movie's narrative. So you guys have already, you're done with Black Panther 2, correct? Mm-hmm. Already done. So what tea can you give me without Marvel coming in and kidnapping both of us? <laughs> Man, I'm trying to get Black bagged out here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Jamila Hill was fantastic. <laughs> in memory of. But no, um, no, there's, that, there's not much I can give you other than to let you know that it's something that there is deep respect for the life and memory of Chadwick Boseman. That is something that we had to wrestle with daily on set because there was a gaping hole when it came to his presence. You felt it daily. You felt him not being there. And he was a very gentle man and gentleman in a space. That was one thing that I could say super confidently. He was a very gentle presence of strength, power, and, you know, scope. You knew he was there, but he didn't have to say anything. He wasn't imposing any ideas on you. He wasn't walking around with a big ego, but you felt him. And he he really conveyed leading man with great ease. And in such a way where when they're around, you don't even understand, you don't realize the impact when they're there, but when they're not, it is apparent, (laughs) you know what I mean? You feel it, you know, intrinsically. And that was the experience on set daily for a year. And it took us a very long time to film during COVID with everything. And what I can tell you as well is the movie is going to be big. The movie is very big. It's a big story. It's a big franchise for Disney. I think Disney and Marvel understands the gravitas of what Black Panther is. And I'm very excited for the world to see what we do with that. And it's an evolution of what was created with the first one. And it's very exciting. Is it better than the first one, you think? Um, I stay away from, from qualifiers, like better, you okay. know, I, I feel like uh, getting away from comparative and competitive mindsets when it comes to art creation is very helpful for me. That's one of my unbothered tools and tips is staying away from uh, a sense of competitive mindset and comparative mindset, because they cannot be the same. The world that Black Panther won was ushered into is not the world that Black Panther 2 is ushered into. So it cannot be the same. So thinking of it as better or worse, it, it, to me, is, 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 is a non-issue. I feel we made Black Panther 1 on the heels of Donald Trump becoming president in a world where we, were, where we felt we couldn't trust each other you know, from a man that said, you know, Mexico is sending us their worst and people still voted for him. And you were looking at some of your friends saying, 
was it you? <laughs> right. Because I've had conversations with you about social justice and what really togetherness and brotherhood and allyship is. And to believe that you walked into a private room and potentially voted for a person, I don't know who I could trust. So for a while, right after that election, I remember this mass feeling of mistrust and distrust of like, who's around you? What are they really thinking? Am I completely wrong? No, I mean, it, it, listen, I, I think that is why, even though he's no longer in office, that spirit of division is still there. It's still there. It's still there just because the stench yes. he has left yes. is so thick yes. in our country. And, and that's so, the yeah. world that Black Panther 1 came into, mm -hmm. a world of like initial division and a, a world that felt like it was losing hope. Right. From a world that literally was ushered in from hope. It was Obama. It was hope. It was literally about hope. And Black Panther was one of those projects that brought back a sense of diasporatic hope. And I'm talking about the diaspora of all people. You know, not just the African diaspora. It's all the immigrant diasporas. Wakanda was this dream for people that tomorrow could be really better. could be something different could be futurist, where we all get to live and be completely realized, right? So the idea of our history wasn't taken from us and we could be so distinct, diverse, have conflict, but still be so nuanced in our conflict, you know? And that's something that resonated not just with Black people, Black Americans, it was actually quite global. So Black Panther 1 came into a world that was dealing with that, a, a place that didn't understand hope. Black Panther 1 didn't come into a world of quarantine. Black Panther 1 didn't come into a world of blockchain, of NFTs, of, of you know, actual, real, deep self-definition. So Black Panther 2 cannot be that. It can't be Black Panther 1 because where it came from, the world it came from isn't the same. And now we're going into this post-COVID world. What's that movie going to mean? Because no matter what we make, it's still going to be influenced by the landscape that it's being dropped into. But not just the post-COVID world, post-George Floyd. Post-George Floyd. Right. Post-mass protests. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? And I think... A lot of things also get colored and contextualized, you know, and, and we're going to learn what Black Panther 2 is. I can't tell you what it is. <laughs> Even if I told you the plot. Right. I can't tell you what Black Panther 2 is because we're, it's, we're, we've yet to meet a person, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's a child. So I'm of the opinion they should recast T'Challa. Because, um, you know, you look at Superman, you look at Batman, and we're going to talk about your Batman project in a minute. And they change all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think T'Challa and Black Panther is an idea. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about potentially that? I think recast? for this, I think for this iteration of Black Panther, it's very hard for me to like really comment on something like that because, you know, I'm of the mind that. This is Chadwick's role. Chadwick created this, and Black Panther wouldn't be the same without Chadwick Boseman, who stood for the things that he stood for. 
So you didn't just cast an actor. And at this moment, I will never play a gay man or a trans person on in film because that wouldn't be right. When you cast a person, you're also casting their experiences. You're casting their politics. You're casting all these things. Black Panther was heavily defined by the actor that did it, in my opinion. So I feel that as is and the decision that's been made to keep T'Challa, Chadwick Boseman's T'Challa, is one that is that has a lot of nobility in it. But you also have to, there's a level of trust that I think we should all have for a comic book world. <laughs> for a comic book world that has multiple dimensions and parallel dimensions and multiple stories and possible futures and possible reimaginations in the past and just multiple universes that they're actually experimenting with. So I feel my level of trust is that the medium can support a diversity of interpretations that can actually make us all happy. And I just trust that that's somewhere in the future. I think Black Panther, I think T'Challa is a very important character to the narrative moving forward. So it's my hope that we just have to trust that somehow there's a universe where and how he could be reimagined. And that's one thing that I have. But for this movie, I'm very happy that they decided to embrace the narrative of us losing Chadwick Boseman and keeping it as such, mm. you know, because it's, I think it's really great to acknowledge any black man's humanity. And I feel that is what is being said is that we're making a choice to honor a real life event of a very outstanding black man that also represented all black men. And I think that's what's really beautiful about part of the casting of us in this in these movies is that at the end of the day, my opinion of why I was successful, why, you know, Chadwick Boseman is and was successful why Daniel Kaluuya and every one of us are successful that we actually are very reminiscent of everybody else. You have a cousin that looks like Daniel. You have a cousin that looks exactly like Chadwick, that smiles like Chadwick. And for a very long time, multiple industries have been saying, that's not what it's supposed to look like. That's not what beauty is supposed to look like. That's not what a star is supposed to look like. That's not what a leader, what a hero, what, you know, the one person in the center of the frame is supposed to look like. And they put us all in there and said, I could frame up on that. I could frame up on your cousin. I could frame up on your brother. I could frame up on all these different people. So that's what honoring him and keeping him in that thing meant to me it means that i matter you've now worked extensively with ryan coogler the director of black panther what makes him a different director i think what makes him a different director is his is what makes him a different human being is that he's very aware of himself and he doesn't apologize or try to shift that the way he'll sit and talk to you is how he'll sit and talk to the head of disney on set, how his Bay Area 
Island. I was gonna say he's so Oakland in <laughs> his Oakland <laughs> Bay so area <laughs> accent is yeah. how he'll talk to everyone on set. He literally calls, he says A hey, to people. Like, hey, I need can you pull in? Can you pull in real quick? Hey. And he'll literally talk to you just like that. And he'll talk to someone else like that. He talks to his wife like that. He'll he doesn't change. He doesn't code shift. No. And that's powerful. And I think that translates and there is incredible just like he is, he's just one of the most intelligent people that I've ever met. It comes through in everything that he does, even like his, just his choices on how to be private with you in public spaces. Right. So on set, we were talking about a choice for M'Baku and we were talking about M'Baku's here. He was like, yo, yo, come over here real quick. Let me talk to you real quick. I, I, and then he starts telling me, and I thought he was going to hit me with something. And it was just like the hairline of the character. <laughs> it was just about the hairline of my character. And he just wanted to be respectful, right? And he called someone else over. He was like, yeah, if you like look at my hairline. Wait, was, it, was, was he trying to low-key tell you, let your hair No, 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 no. tell you, because all that is spoilers. Uh, talking about the hairline. Can't say, can't say nothing. Okay, all right, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> so what's crazy about the amazing Marvel fans is that even in Avengers, they found out that Chadwick Boseman was in Avengers Infinity War based on his third stuntman being on the call sheet so they put things together so specifically that you can't say anything or else they will unravel the entire plot because what's amazing about this ip is that it's pre-existing so some of these people have read and I've made their own theories and like dissected and put things together. <laughs> so if I say anything about a hairline, if I say anything about a hair color, they're going to be like, oh, M'Baku's hair color only changed in issue 328 during this conflict. <gasps> I know what, you know what I mean? So they, they'll put together. So anything you say. Mm-hmm. Well, I just think from a cultural standpoint, a black man telling you about the hairline is just hilarious. No, it's, it's like real talk. It is. It is. Hilarious. And the amount of, so for me, it was the amount of just how precious he was. It was just, I, I, I felt it. I was just like, oh, this dude's just being so, he's being mad respectful. Mm-hmm. And you don't always feel that. You don't always feel that when it comes to like external things, you know, in that way. And that's what, you know, I said, I just spent three weeks in Rwanda, in a space where I did not feel that same sense of spatial fatigue. So it's juxtapositions like that that make you realize that just how thick you build of a skin to deal with microaggressions about your looks. We even had a joke um, when we, when we, talked the other day and saying like it's gonna be great to not have someone say i'm almost as tan as you this summer you know what i mean and to i've heard that maybe 15 20 30 times in my life to the point where it just it doesn't even impact me anymore i just go ah ha, ha, well i guess 
You know I mean, you just at this point, it just it's communicated that it impacted you with an eye roll, a right. blink, right, a smirk. Memo to white people: Stop saying that. The don't, say that. <laughs> don't, don't say that. Don't, don't say, say that. that. Don't say that. Don't say that. Bad thing. <laughs> yeah. Right. So for me, having somebody just talk to me about a hairline with that much respect communicated shared experience. It, it communicated ten layers of depth with just a simple choice. Which goes right back to our opening conversation of those ripples. So um, I'm sure you saw, like a lot of people, unfortunately, the incident that happened to Ryan at the bank. Mm. And the level of terror, I think, Mm. seeing how that unfolded, Mm. knowing so many times where that could have ended really, really badly. Uh, Mm. When you saw that, what came to mind for you? Uh, So two things happened. So the first thing that happened was I got fake news. So how it was reported when I first saw it was, it was like Ryan Coogler goes into a bank and just tries to take out money with a note without any explanation, without any like setup. And all this stuff happened. And I was like, one, I know Ryan, which is again, it's great to have people in the world in your life to just challenge narratives because that's so problematic and that adds to that spatial fatigue, especially even like being in in my world of like acting Hollywood where it's really easy to be labeled difficult. That's a career ending word in our- If you're black, it is. If you're black, (laughs) right? Difficult. It's not anything else. It's just difficult and you will not get cast you could lose out on crazy opportunities it's but what is difficult specific that's another word that could be used instead or or just having a high standard high standard that's it anything right but the reductiveness of difficult becomes a death sentence and having people in the world who goes that don't sound right that narrative doesn't sound right that doesn't like what happened and I got the fake news and I said, that doesn't that didn't sound right. That doesn't sound like Ryan. One, two, it's no matter what happened, it's unjust and it's, it's unfair. But how I'm hearing this story didn't sound right. Did more research immediately. I mean, like within in minutes, found another story and then found like an actual news outlet that was reputable that went through. The full video where he, I saw Ryan say, oh man, I said to this person, I went in like, hey, this is who I am. I don't want a lot of attention. This is my ID. This is this other thing. This is the experiences. I actually like, you know, I bank here all the time. I live in another city. Like he gave a lot of information. He doesn't need to. It's his account. But he did all that and that still happened. And it scared me. It hurt me. I went through a similar experience. I said, I was working on a project in Richmond, Virginia. I just went to get, uh, I was working on set. I had a, a pimple. So they sent me to a dermatology office just to get like a cortisone shot in the pimple because we're going to be on screen. They called the police on me. And I was like, wait, wait, what? Just because I said, I told them, hey, 
everything's been paid for by the studio. Everything, it's already set up. I'm just here to get the shot, sign in and get the shot. I fill out everything, even gave them my social. I just said, I cannot give you my home address because that's just unsafe for me. I don't do that. I don't put my home address on anything. And white male flies off the handle. Who do you think you are? If you're not going to put this on, we can't treat you. And I said, that doesn't sound like a call you're allowed to make. We got into just a discussion, not even anything. He then starts saying, I'm being belligerent. Get out of here. You need to leave. Get out of here. Screaming at me. I'm going to call the cops. I'm wearing like training clothes. Like I'm wearing shorts, like compression tights. And I said, all right, you call the cops. You tell them that a guy in white leggings is threatening you for a facial right now. And that's what you call him, you know? Calls the cops. Cops show up. I'm on the phone calling everybody that I could to stay on the phone. And they show up and, like, pull me out of the place. Like, you you have to leave. You got to get out. Blah, 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 blah. And it just showed me that no matter how much you achieve in spaces where Again, spatial fatigue is happening. It's very easy. If someone doesn't recognize you as exceptional, your life could be in danger. And Ryan Coogler, who's contributed so much to our global culture, could literally have his life potentially taken away for trying to access his own money, for doing mundane things we're not committing any kind of crime for just living and someone saying you seem like you're perpetrating too much exceptional behavior and that's what that was for me it was like you're trying to take out too much money who do you think you are and the problem and the most in- insidious aspect of internalized white supremacy internalized racism internalized prejudice is it could come from anybody it could come from your own because it's internalized it's a virus that's the scary thing <laughs> i don't mean to make this sound as lighthearted as it may sound but you might have died over a pimple i might have died over a pimple i mean i cried standing there just being like really you know what i mean and i said and it was Two cops showed up with a black cop and a white cop. And the black cop was like, yeah, I, I know who you are. I know who you are. And he was like, you know, it's Richmond, man. It's Richmond. And well, I guarantee you, if you showed up here with a whole group of people, you showed up with cameras, they wouldn't have treated you that way. And I said, I don't have to do that to just get simple work done. I'm a paying customer. I should, have, I should be able to be treated like anybody else. And he was like, yeah, I understand what you're saying. But you can't go back in. And I was like, well, now that you know that I'm in the right, why don't you go in there and do something? He was like, yeah, well, we, we're, we're at risk of being written up. And I said, you guys have more respect for this brick and mortar than you have for my physical body, huh? No response. That was a sobering experience for me. Before we go to break, let me ask you, was there any restitution, apology? What was the outcome? Apology. Okay. You know, I got the studios and everyone around me involved you know they literally when the police pulled me outside a producer was pulling up you know to be like no 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 he's 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 working with us he's working with us and to just feel like you needed to be rescued by white proximity was also its own painful experience of 
losing self-agency. That, again, painful, sobering, fatigue. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break. I promise there's more lighthearted things on the, on the other side of this. We're going to talk about Batman Unburied, which is a big reason why you're here at Cannes right now. But uh, more to come with the wonderful Winston Duke when we return. Every four to six weeks, my favorite thing happens. I go get my hair rebraided. And I got a story to tell about the numerous stories I hear in the braiding salon. Or is it the hair salon still, even though they specialize in braids? Whatever. In case you're wondering, because I know you all care very deeply about my braid maintenance, I get my braids done so often because I don't get a full takedown every time. I usually get touch-ups, and then every four or five months, I get the full treatment. Have them taken down, my hair washed, conditioned, my split ends dealt with, and then my braids are put right back up. So usually when I get the full treatment, I mean, this is like a eight, nine hour day. Easy. Now, there are multiple reasons I love going to the braiding salon. My braider, Maritha, shout out to you, Maritha, is the best television critic in the business. Anything on streaming, she's seen. And she's always putting me up on new shows. She put me up on The Handmaid's Tale before anybody else. She put me up on Snowfall before anybody else. Like, if it's in the new release section on Netflix, if it pops up on Hulu in the rotating preview section, she is watching that and doing deep dives into Hulu, Netflix, and Amazon Prime. That's how my girl gets down. Secondly, I love sitting there for hours because it leaves plenty of time for me to fuck with the people on social media who usually have been fucking with me. But my favorite, my absolute favorite reason I love going to the braiding salon is because of the stories I hear and sometimes the hookups I receive. Now, I know we often talk about how the barbershop being the hub of conversation, foolishness, merchandise, and questionable advice. And let me tell you, the hair salon or braiding salon isn't any different, at least not the one I go to. Now, during the height of the pandemic, I almost bought some black market ground turkey because you just couldn't get that shit anywhere. And one of the stylists, her man worked at Ralph's grocery store and she was going to get him to hook me up with some fresh off the truck. And of course, I was going to pay for it because I desperately wanted some ground turkey. And now come to think of it, I need to holler at her because I swear I ain't seen turkey sausage in the supermarket since 2019. No lie. Now, today in the shop, I learned this, that I needed to dress up as Marilyn Monroe as a fantasy for my husband because somebody in the shop is really into role playing and they're always giving me, let's just say, very interesting ideas about how I can keep it spicy in the bedroom through various costumes. I got some cannabis infused bath bombs because there's a dude that makes them homemade and then he comes through the shop to sell them. I also learned that part of the final season of Snowfall is actually being filmed less than 10 minutes away. I also learned about the full conspiracy theory behind Easy es death. Don't ask, but I can tell you this much. He was not about to buy NBC. The life lessons in the shop are really endless. I'm also pretty sure that in this shop, this is where Bitcoin started. And now back to more with Winston Duke. 
I have to make a confession. I'm somebody who was not very familiar mm -hmm. with fictional scripted podcasts. And Batman Unburied, which you did for Spotify, which was a raging success, was my first foray into this. It was really mm. exceptional. So how did you become involved with this project? Oh, man. So this was Spotify's first, you know, narrative podcast. And I thought of it as a really great opportunity just to do good work. So a big part of my life is just always thinking about what my catalog of work will be when I'm 75, 80, 90 years old. Like, what am I going to look back on and say, oh, I did that. And that was so cool. And it was so different. It's different than the last thing I did. It was a different depiction of a different person. Um, and it happened at a specific part of my life that influenced it. And Batman felt like a great addition to that to that catalog of work in the future. And I said, wow, Batman of all the characters, you know? And I said, Black Batman would be great, but making it, you know, a lot more dynamic than something just silly and simple, like Black voice would be, that'd be cool. It's Bruce Wayne, not Bruce Dwayne, you know what I mean? And I said, how do I do that? Cool. That would be really great. That would, that would be so exciting. And then in sitting down to actually do the work, like sit down and actually get into it, I realized, I was like, oh, shit. Like, of all the superheroes, Batman is like the whitest one. <laughs> he is, <laughs> I mean, he's a billionaire. He's like a he's a billionaire. <laughs> grew up in privilege. Grew up completely privileged. <laughs> and it's always been the joke that yeah. his superpower, he has no power. Yeah, superpower is money. His superpower is money. Yeah, superpower is white privilege. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> he can get it done because he can afford it. And I said, oh, shit, like this one is really hard. And I had to be really imaginative to try to find my own personal justification and justification way in and i started going you know this entire culture of gotham is like based on him his family history his family lineage and he is completely just a character that doesn't get any recognition for it they treat batman terribly as a culture right right <laughs> but they depend on him they depend on wayne industries as the lifeblood of the economy in Gotham, and I said, wow, that invisibility and, you know, propping up of a culture unpaid, unappreciated, that feels very analogous to the Black experience to me. And then I said, a man that distrusts the justice system so much that he'd want to take it on himself and become a vigilante, I'm surprised, you know, <laughs> it hasn't happened with a Black billionaire yet, right? Right. And then I thought about all these other parallels that just once I started looking at it from that point of view, I said, this twist imbues me with so much more interesting developmental fuel than I ever thought could even possibly be there. And... I even thought about the Riddler differently. I said, oh, cool. As an immigrant to this country, my first experience of America was all riddles. 
You know what I mean? Trying to figure out how to do taxes here, trying to figure out how to get into school, get through academia, find jobs, understand the American culture. And I felt like at large, that is the immigrant experience. It's like working through riddles and finding depth in them and using them to master that foreign culture. And I said, oh, shit, imagine if you're immigrants, <laughs> which is played by this Desi Indian guy, <laughs> just speaking in deep riddles, which a lot of immigrants also tend to do. My mother always says, I don't hold water in my moat. <laughs> Most people are like, what does that mean? I don't hold water in my mouth. She says that she's saying that she doesn't hold back for anything. Mm. She keeps her mouth open. If you offend her, you're going to know about it. You know what I mean? So she can't hold water in her mouth. It's going to spill out. And that's deep. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, she also says, strangers don't know their burial ground. Which always meant to me, when you're in a new space, be aware. You don't know the dangers of this, of this space. You don't know you're new to it. You're a stranger there. You don't know what's safe and what isn't. So take your time. Learn about it before you start sticking up. So everywhere I go, I'm always like, I take, I take stock. I look, I listen before I speak. I understand. I understand who's who, what's what. Get a lay of the land before I start making big steps. Your mom drops bars, I see. Now imagine if she was a villain. <laughs> right. And that to me made so much sense. Right. So once I really unlocked my imagination within this white world, I said, this iteration of Batman and this world of Batman I'm buried made so much more sense to me. And I could play Bruce Wayne in a play in, from a place, even though it's just coming vocally, it's just coming from, you know, my diverse background. Like I said, when you cast an actor, you don't just you don't just cast a mouthpiece. You cast their experiences. You you cast where they come from. You didn't just cast an actor, you cast Winston Duke that comes from Trinidad and Tobago that moved to the United States when he was, you know, nine, 10 years old, went through his own specific experiences to be in this version of Hollywood at this time. And people are going to hear that in my voice. They don't have to know and articulate why that's interesting, why that means something. They'll just say, I like it. It, it makes sense. And that was my way into Batman. That's why I said, oh, yeah, this would be really cool. I could do something really fun and special and exciting and exciting for me. And in turn, it became really exciting for a lot of people who were listening to it. And an audience that tends to be very sometimes resistant to hardcore change. Well, that's what I was going to ask you is that were you concerned how the audience might there. react? Yeah, because you have not only Batman is black, but Batman's parents are alive in this. Mm -hmm. And that's a very stark change because I'm so accustomed to seeing at least one scene in all the movies of his parents being murdered. I'm like, how many times are you going to see Batman? How many times are you going to traumatize us? You see what I'm saying? I'm like, <laughs> how many times do I have to watch Batman's parents yes. murdered on screen? Constantly. Yeah. Constantly. And it was really like, and that was another thing. It's like, he comes from trauma. He comes from a space mm -hmm. of prior trauma. And you always meet Batman like hardened to his trauma at all times and to kind of play this batman that is completely coming from a place of not having that trauma 
which means that he developed in a softer way. He actually has a relationship with his family and the relationship to his family, no matter what, feels a lot closer to your relationship with your family. <laughs> you know, he's just trying to be his own person. He's just try. he's rebelling a bit, but has a deep closeness and his mom is overbearing and his father is overbearing, but they love him and he's negotiating, constant negotiations. And that felt really close to home. So seeing that character in a place that felt so much more human was really fun for me. It was something that felt really refreshing and it felt new, even though it didn't always have to be the most drastic, crazy change. It felt new. You mentioned a moment ago about you immigrating to the States when you were nine years old. Mm. What was that transition like for you? I mean, it was rough, but also very enriching, you know, fulfilling. It was rough coming from essentially a family of like 300 people and then just distilling that family to three people, mother, sister, yourself, and then having to do that in a city that has its own distinct personality and rules and boundaries and functions like New York City, Brooklyn, New York, in, you know, the early 2000s, late 90s. That was a whole different Brooklyn. You know what I mean? That's Big East Brooklyn. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? And uh, yeah, it was was a stark shift. It was a complete disparate shift from an island of 60,000 people where my house, literally, if you look out, so I'll paint the picture. We are looking out at the beach right now and there are tents on the beach that you walk right out of the tent and you're on the sand in the ocean. That's how I grew up before 10 years old. Our house was right there on a beach. You walk outside, you're on the sand and you're in the ocean. I took a secondary shower every day <laughs> because all I had to do was wash the salt off my body because that's how we, we like, we would go to the ocean and bathe. They call them sea baths. You know what I mean? And now in the States, I probably would have to pay $2,000 you know, for someone to give me a sea bath. You know? <laughs> it definitely sounds like something in a bougie spa. Yeah, it's bougie spa <laughs> Los Angeles. But like that was life for me growing up. So going to Brooklyn, New York and having Far Rockaway Beach be like one of the, the only places or Coney Island being like your beach escape experience was a complete desperate experience. And it was hard. It was hard growing up in that way. It was hard, like, you know, not having that same sense of community because I knew everybody growing up and on my island. A lot of them were my relatives. And then going to New York where you know no one, it was completely different. But that you know, it built in me this this idea of understanding different spaces and having to listen more than I speak most times, not not on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it really instilled a lot of uh, really positive characteristics that I treasure today. So your mom's a chef? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what was it like uh, being raised by a chef? <laughs> I grew up fat. 
<laughs> you know? So uh, it was, you know, I was never hungry. <laughs> now, can you cook? Or? I can cook. Okay. Uh, but yeah, man, nah. <laughs> we got to fit some of these clothes. Right. We're trying to do fashion weeks out in these streets. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, no. It was always like food was always. Um, the relationship to food was always something that meant family, that meant so many things. So actually growing up, you didn't really ask this question, but it relates to it, which is as a man now, I had to really change a lot of my relationships to food because food growing up meant so many things. You know, food was defined as family, as success, you know, as a second parent. Food was therapy. Food was an apology. Food was, you know, I mean, I could literally give the list continues. And I had to grow up, especially being an actor, to just boiling food down to being fuel. Oh my God, you sound like my husband. Yeah. All the time. Food is just fuel. I'm like, no. But (laughs) But I understand. Exactly. And like for, for my work, for all these things, I had to have it just become fuel. It could no longer be therapy. If I'm not feeling great, food could could no longer be, oh, I'm doing this for comfort. It's easier said than done. So you had to change your emotional relationship. All the relationships to food and so many other things, Mm -hmm. you know, so many other things, you know, coming from a space of scarcity as well. Food, money, housing, cars, all these things had so many different wild definitions. And then to stay sane. To stay healthy, you have to boil them back down to what they actually are, you know, and that's that's a thing, you know, it goes right back to your initial questions. Like, how did you become unbothered? And again, that's a really big process for me that I'm learning day to day because I'm learning to redefine things in healthy ways that support me is another way that I'm learning to become. So uh, when it came to acting, why was this the thing that you wanted to do? I wanted to be everything growing up. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be a, a lawyer, a dentist. I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to be a fire truck. Uh, Not a firefighter, a but fire a truck. truck. But a fire truck. I was down. You know? <laughs> uh, but no, no, no. I wanted to be everything. And acting was just that outlet that allowed me potentially, imaginatively, to be everything. And that was so scary for my immigrant family. I was going to say, because, you know, having friends who come from immigrant families, they're about education. They're about high achievement. So the joke is there's three things. You either be a doctor, a lawyer or a disappointment. That's it. And it wasn't happening. (laughs) So it really changed when, you know, I was getting a master's degree and I was applying for graduate schools and I got into Yale School of Drama. And my mother looked at me and she said, you know, there's no Yale in in Tobago. So (laughs) So then it was okay. So it was okay. But if it wasn't Yale, it might have been a problem. Yeah, you know, but she was very supportive. She came to every single show. Mm. And, you know, that's the thing of like the strong motherhood is just a lot of times it's just presence. Like there wasn't a lot that she could give me. And there wasn't a lot of sometimes experiential help that she could give me because she hadn't gone through those things. But she was present. She is present. And that's one of the things that I'm like just eternally grateful. I will always be grateful 
for from my mother is just she is very very present you know and in a world where you know we're in this culture of like letting kids go at 18 you know that's not the parent that i will be in the future you know so what did you get your degree in your undergrad undergrad i studied many things until i became into acting (laughs) (laughs) yeah no but i actually i ended up getting a degree in theater performance okay. and media studies, so film history and all that. So you related it, okay? Oh yeah. All right. I didn't, I didn't know if you were going to tell me one of those stories. Where like, well, actually, I was an engineering major, and then I. No, <laughs> I I, that was my story. That was that, that was your, my story. that was your yeah, story. No, okay, so my yeah. story is, I came in pre-law, pre-law, and right. then it wasn't working out, mm-hmm. and then I was like, you know, I really love history. I'm going to go to archaeology. And my first dinosaurs class, I found out how many toes they got. And I was just like, nah. <laughs> I gotta remember all How many toes does a dinosaur? Hey, stop, stop. Okay. Stop. No, but you know, I realized that what I liked like about archaeology was putting together story. Because that's what you do as an archaeologist. You put together story pieces from things that you find unexpectedly. Right. And you say, these people lived here. This happened here. This is dated here. I liked that work. And then I changed to anthropology and then didn't work out. But I realized that I liked the study of people and cultures. And that's the thing. And the pre-law thing was I wanted to be a trial lawyer. So even the performative nature of like giving an argument and being in front of people and convincing them of a point was what I loved. So once I found it to be acting, everything came together and every other interest I ever had blew right open. And it just, I always say your dream will make everything else possible. So always follow your dream. I didn't understand science and math and all these things. I understand it so much more because my vehicle into understanding is language. If I can understand language, I can get it. And that's, that's how my brain works. So I always say your dream will access every other thing for you. Whatever your superpower is, it'll, it'll open all the other doors to everything else that you can do. Was there a moment or moments where you realized you were actually good at this? Early. Mm. Early. I wasn't, I wasn't good at it, but I thought I was then. And that was all I needed, to, needed, right? So in the messy stage of learning how to act, I always had passion for it and wasn't afraid to experiment and be bold. And I think that's what everyone I always saw, even then. And just kept going, you, you got it. You got it until, you know, years and years passed until I really finally had it. And now as an artist, having it is evolution to me. That's how I define it. My own personal definition of it is evolution and changing and shifting and nuance and specificity. So, you know, I don't know what kind of actor or artist I will be 10 years from now, but I won't, I hopefully will not be the same person I am today. So before I let you go, there's a game I play with all the guests who appear on the podcast. 
This is where the controversy happens. I just, I just controversy. This is where the That's controversy. That's a big goes. word. It is, but this is where it goes now. Okay. So the game is called this or that. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this, or you can get with that. You can oh. get with this, or you can get with that. You can get with this. I give you two choices. Got you. You gotta pick one. That's it. That's okay. it. You ready? Trap. Yeah, it is. I just want Sounds you to know. Simple. The movie Philadelphia or Splash. Philadelphia. Okay. I know those are two of your favorites. Yes. <laughs> the Splash went through me. I was like, I haven't seen Splash. Splash is incredible. It is. It is good. It is, it's imaginative mm-hmm. and playful. Philadelphia is a performance movie. Splash is imaginative. So, like, you will, you can watch that over and you can't watch Philadelphia on repeat. Yeah, that's true. You cannot watch it on repeat. It's, it's 12 Years a Slave. You Man, I saw that once. <laughs> Traumatized the shit. For the rest, <laughs> yes, you can't. I was like, you I can't. can't. <laughs> that was a one watch. Incredible performances, but you cannot watch it in succession. No. Splash, you could watch that yearly. Yeah, that's true. Since we were talking about your former classmate, Lupita, mm-hmm. who uh, was in 12 Years a Slave mm-hmm. and won an Oscar. Um, so, Us or Get Out? I was in Us. Uh, I know. <laughs> So you pick it. You pick it yourself. You know what I'm saying? You gotta, you gotta choose you in this world. <laughs> when you read that script, mm. were you like, what the hell? No, <laughs> I actually wasn't. No. I got it. I got it immediately. You got it immediately. I got it immediately. Yeah. I said yes within within hours. I read the script, call back, was like, whoa. Because like what's brilliant about Jordan Peele is he is an expert smuggler. <laughs> and that's part of my own personal mission in life. Just like, you know, we exist inside of a business and it is our job as artists to smuggle in depth into our business. And Jordan Peele is an expert smuggler. Like he layers things 10 layers deep. So you consume it and then it explodes inside of you and you're like, what the hell happened? Smuggled. You know what I mean? I read it and I said, "Oh wow, this is this is the French Revolution. This is this is all of us. This indicts everybody." It's saying, "Wow, you're part of the great machine. You're part of the empire, and your comfort is built on tons of other people's pain and sacrifices." What if all those people showed up at your door and said, "It's our turn. Mm-hmm. Where's mine? <clears throat> I'm taking it." That's scary. And you might be oppressed and putting a black family at the center of that. Yeah, you might be oppressed here, but you're still benefiting from here. You're still part of the empire. So you're not absolved of the sin. Even though you're oppressed in it, you're not absolved from it. So if the folks who are hurt by you show up and say, it's my turn, it's mine. You can't say, no, I'm one of you. Don't, don't, don't get me. I said, wow. That's some deep shit. Yeah, that's that's crazy. <laughs> and that's us. Yeah, yeah. The battle scene in Infinity War or the battle scene in Endgame? Mm. Battle scene in Endgame for sure. Yeah. Battle scene. They have so much. I shot like two days worth of stuff for Endgame that didn't make it in the movie because they had so much stuff. 
Wow. It was everybody ah, running, running. They literally just kept, it was like a, a blip. You see like M'Baku in there and a, a little blip. But we shot like two days of fighting. <laughs> and I was like, y'all need to come see this. <laughs> you know, I'm killing it in this in this movie. In that last fight scene, you're gonna see something. And I was sitting there like, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna come. You're like any second. I, any wait second. for it, wait for it. <laughs> it's gonna be in the extended version of the movie. Director's cut. Director's cut. <laughs> right. It didn't it didn't happen. Didn't happen. <laughs> it, did, it didn't happen. I still enjoy and love that movie. It's 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 fun. That movie's fun. I watch it every single time. Like really? I, I can't tell you the number of times I've seen both of them, actually. Yes. Um and I probably every couple weeks, yeah, I watch both of those battle scenes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, because yes. I have to see when Thor brings the hammer when he drops it down and yes. I can just sizzles every fucking body. That's amazing. That's yeah. one of my favorite parts. Um, and, you know, in game, that's the first time I, I think I, I told you this off air that I've been to a movie and I went to the premiere that felt like a Super Bowl. Yes. It, it was. I mean, it, was. it felt that way. Like it was a big, big production event. And then when all the black people come first, they come yeah. back first. I was like, the black people yeah. come first. <laughs> no, it was amazing. Yeah. It was amazing. It was amazing. Seeing Captain America pick up the hammer. And you're like, oh my God. You, it, was, it was just so many little like so many moments. Eggs. In that. Yeah. yeah. Little Easter eggs that just made you go, this pays off. Yes. And it feels like it's been it pays off after 18 years. And that's what Marvel does exceptionally. It paid, it, it, it wrote the checks. Totally. And cashed them. <laughs> and it was really great. Connecticut or New York pizza? Low-key Connecticut pizza slaps. That ain't even low-key. <laughs> New, New Yorkers get so pissed when yeah. I Because I lived in Connecticut for four years. The pizza is better in Connecticut slaps. than it is in New York. Slaps. It's like, it's, it's completely unexpected. But slaps. Hundred percent. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah. Since you went to Yale, did you go to Pepe's? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's that's why I asked you the question because I know you had to have gone to Pepe's. Yeah, yeah, but... yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 it was completely unexpected. Completely yeah. unexpected, but it's incredible. Yeah. So I know I didn't realize until I lived in Connecticut that New Haven was that hood. I had no idea. They call it gun waving New Haven. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you you realize that yeah. more. You know, the more you go around these spaces, is that that's a different conversation. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that off air. We'll talk about that off air. All right. Finally, the Forrest Gump movie score hmm. or Pirates of the Caribbean. You've been studying me. You've Listen, studying I do this. Me. This is what I get. You to have for. been studying uh-huh. me. Yes, I have. You know what? I will tell you this. That's a hard one, but I'm going to choose the Pirates of the Caribbean score because I love the grandeur of it. The Forrest Gump score is really delicate at times and nuanced, and I'm not in that space. I'm in a I'm I'm not apologizing. I'm stepping into my strength. I want big, I love size, scope, depth. And that for me is that soundtrack. The Pirates of the Caribbean is like big, 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 wild, big budget. Dun, da, 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 dun, 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 it's very similar to in personality. The score to Pirates of the Caribbean is similar to Avengers. 
big horns, big, big instruments, big, big bands, and it's great. Mm. See, I always save the toughest one as the last one. Mm. So I knew that you would. <laughs> oh, yeah. I put you on the ropes with that one a little Listen, listen. But you know, we come back. Yeah, you, you know, we fight. Back. We bounce off them. We bounce off them. Well, listen, Winston, thank you so much um, for spending this time and having this conversation. Mm. You know, I know you're just getting started, man, but I just enjoy watching you. And I cannot wait till Black Panther 2 and all the other things that you have coming forward in your career. So thank you. We are doing a fist bump. We are doing a fist bump. I mean, I was like, we can't get up the mic and and listen to that. She shattered my wrist. (laughs) She is a strong, incredible woman. As if. Well, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Uh, So Winston is getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment, Fucking Unbothered. As a career journalist, one of my biggest pet peeves is when people on Twitter loudly and proudly tweet, sometimes in all caps, why is nobody talking about insert big news story here? And then they proceed to link the story from a major news outlet. And fuck it, I'm bothered. It's really fucking annoying. I saw so much of this with Brett Favre, the Hall of Fame quarterback who stole millions from a Mississippi fund earmarked for welfare recipients. Also, he could build his daughter a volleyball court at his alma mater, Southern Mississippi. He also pocketed a cool $1.1 million for himself from the same fund for speaking engagements he never did. It's heinous, and he should be facing criminal punishment. What makes it especially fucked up is over the course of his NFL career, Brett Favre earned $140 million. But that's not the point of this particular diatribe. Favre's misdeeds began to unravel two years ago. And while it was definitely more of a local story then and took a little time for the national media to pick it up, once they did, it was full steam ahead. Despite this, over and over again, people kept tweeting that they couldn't believe no one was talking about this story. And yet that was their exact quote tweet over a CNN story. That happens with a lot of stories or sometimes if people don't see particular stories on their timeline and because they live in a vacuum, they again hit that accusation button. Don't get me wrong. The media deserves plenty of shit for stories it does not uncover, the stories that are underreported or flat out ignored. Despite this persistent lunacy in our political sphere, there has not nearly been as much attention paid to the fact that our democracy is literally melting away right in front of us. Or the media is continuing to frame climate change as a normal pro-con political disagreement and not the fucking destruction of the planet. When we have storms, flooding, hurricanes, when every day it seems like some new shit has been invented to kill us. How come nobody is talking about that? Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. 
from Unbothered Inc. Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jess Borson. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Fry and Alexander Hitchens. This or That Music, The Choice is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc., on behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of 7'5 and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word. How I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live, you don't want to miss it. I was born to get it, and you don't forget it. Sit back.